Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, as always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. And we're really pleased to say we've got a guest on this week, which is Dr. Julie Maxwell. Hi, Julie. How are you doing? Hi, I'm fine. Thank you. Um, uh, we're really looking forward to having a conversation with you about some of your work as a community paediatrician and in particular thinking about um, caring for, for che- teenagers and, and children experiencing questions around their g- gender identity. Um, before we tackle some of the, would you mind just explaining a little bit about who you are, what you do, and, and if people haven't heard of a community paediatrician, what exactly that role involves? Yes. Hi. So um, so I work as a community paediatrician in Hampshire. Um, I've been doing it for just about 20 years, um, just over 20 years. Um, so a community paediatrician differs in different places. But um, so my job is has been predominantly seeing children with autism, ADHD, learning difficulties. And also I have a particular interest in language disorders. Um, so young children with language disorders. Um, so it, it sort of involves assessing children and looking at what might be causing their problems and looking at best ways to help them going forwards. And are you based in a hospital or are you visiting people's homes or how does that work? So, uh, again, it differs in different places, but um, in, in our department, we are based in a hospital. Um, once upon a time, we used to do a lot of visiting people in their homes um, and uh, a lot of going into schools as life has kind of changed. We do less and less of that, but uh, still do do um, school visits and nursery visits, which is one of the favourite parts of my job, actually. <laughs> and uh, you're a Christian as well, and you're you're just transitioning out of that role as a paediatrician into something new. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, so I have been working with Lovewise for about 10 years, which is an organisation, which a uh, charity which produces resources for parents, schools, youth clubs, um, churches on sex education, um, sort of marriage, sex, growing up, um, relationships. Um, and uh, and I've recently taken on uh, the role of deputy director uh, in that organisation. And um, so as a result, I have kind of taken a sort of early retirement from uh, my NHS job. I'm just finishing mm-hmm. off. I've still got some clinics that were already booked. So I'm finishing those off. So it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, community paediatrics you wouldn't normally think of as being a particularly high-profile, controversial uh, kind of of, of job. Uh, you know, uh, over most of my career, community paediatrics really was seen as quite a low-profile, very important, very uh, engaged with uh, children's difficulties within the community, uh, working with different uh, authorities and so on. But um, recently, it does seem to have become a more uh, controversial uh, area at times. And is, is that your experience too? Yeah, it, absolutely. I, th- I think for, for for all sorts of reasons. I mean, in my um, you know my my job, one of the big issues that actually I've come across is is the whole kind of diagnosis of autistic spectrum disorders and diagnosis of ADHD and lots of controversy about overdiagnosis or underdiagnosis and um, parents wanting diagnosis when we don't think the child has one or vice versa um so you know, i think it has become you know a, a, a sort of 
a much more controversial um, thing than it certainly was 20 years ago. Um, and, and also the rise in mental health problems. And so lots of the children we see, you know, they've got mental health problems or behavioural issues as a result of um, social difficulties, family breakdown. Um, family breakdown is part of why I got involved in Lovewise in the first place, um, because I was sort of seeing the impact of family breakdown, chaotic families on, on children. Um, and is kind of working with, negotiating with, li- liaising with the children's parents quite a key part of the role then, I imagine, in community paediatrics? Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, it, you often, often it's not so much the child you can normally kind of get a measure of the child very quickly when they when you they walk through your clinic door or from the information you've got from the school but um actually looking at the interaction between the parents what the parents think how the parents handle the child all that kind of stuff is 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 hugely important and then communicating that to the parents in a way that they don't feel got at or that you're criticizing them or kind of managing expectations which are perhaps a bit unrealistic um so yeah there's, there's an awful lot of negotiation with parents and having to do things very carefully um and and also relatively regularly generates complaints when you don't say what parents want you to say um do you do they do parents try and pressurize you to get the certain diagnosis they want they've come with their sheaves of google printouts and they're convinced their child has x and you must just rubber stamp that and give them the drugs that they've decided their child needs Absolutely. Yeah. And that's something that has changed significantly over the, over the last sort of, well, 10 years, I suppose, really. And yeah, they come and say, well, I've Googled it um, and my child's got this, this and this. And, and, and I say, uh, well, actually, I've just assessed your child and, and I don't think so. And, and they're like, well, I don't, I don't care what you say. I'm going to, you know, that's, this is what I think. And like, OK, so, whatever. <laughs> and how do you manage that? I mean, do, do you have sometimes have to like put your foot down or, or can you kind of just kind of more gently kind of skirt around it and steer them towards what the actual diagnosis you've come to i think there's a bit bit of both sometimes it's a journey so sometimes parents need time so you might need to sort of see them again you might go and i might go and talk to the school find out information on what the school thinks um you know yeah there's a lot of negotiation and sometimes it just just takes time to kind of unpick things a bit and um kind of bring them on a journey um, and you know again something I suppose which has changed quite a bit over the last few years is the lack of support for parents out there so you know there, it was much easier to send them to parenting courses or places that could support them um, and uh, that that's become more, much more difficult they just want medication quick fix and answer. So one of the things we're particularly interested in uh, in, in this podcast is uh, children often adolescents who present with a sense of distress or discomfort about their gender. And um, I, I just wonder what your own personal experience has been of, of children and adolescents like that. Yeah, so, I mean, it's something I, I, I got interested in. I'm not entirely sure how, um, but I sort of started off getting a little, just a bit interested in it. Um, and uh, and I, suppose, I suppose with my work with Lovewise, sort of teaching in schools on puberty and, and thinking like, those kind of things I I sort of started looking into it um and sort of started to kind of have some slight concerns about you know what the way things were being done um and so I I went on some training courses went to the Tavistock to to the gender identity service to a couple of training courses um and then kind of got sort of um 
earmarked, I suppose, as, as the, the expert in my department. Um, and so as a result, ended up seeing actually a few children within my medical job um, with gender dysphoria. Um, and, and also, I've since then, I've also had some kind of um, contact with a number of families um, and sort of supported a number of families um, who have, have got children struggling with gender dysphoria, particularly Christian families. And gender dysphoria is a, a, a term that gets thrown around a lot at the moment. Could you give us a little kind of non-medical jargon kind of definition? Because I'm not entirely sure whether we all talk about the same thing when we use that term sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there are there are sort of so many terms, aren't there, um, that are used? But, I mean, gender dysphoria. Um, so according to the, I think it's the NHS website, it's, it describes it as a term that describes a sense of unease that a person may have because of a mismatch between their biological sex and their gender identity. Um, and their sense of unease or dissatisfaction can be so intense that it leads to depression and anxiety and can have a harmful impact. So it's, it's that sort of separation of your biological sex um, and, and sort of feeling that you have a, an identity which is different to that. Um, that's a sort of kind of general idea. So it, it's, it's children, young people, adults um, who just sort of feel some kind of discomfort with their sex, their biological sex. And has there been a significant increase in in children coming forward with gender dysphoria? I mean, I know we've seen the national stats, but is that reflected anecdotally for you as well? Um, I mean, in in my actual NHS job, I I don't see that it doesn't sort of come into my remit hugely. Um, One other bit of my job was um, actually dealing with children who are in foster care. Um, And so I, I came across it a little bit in that. Um, but, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm very aware that you hear, um, of lots and lots of cases, lots, lots more. Um, I mean, I was talking to a group of young adults uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, and, uh, you know, all, every single one of them has a friend or a family member who is identifying as, as transgender in some way, shape or form. Um, and so, you know, almost every school you're going to there, it's, you know, a number of children um, and certainly the referrals to the gender identity service at the Tavistock um, have just shot up um, massively, massively. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a real concern as to what's going on. And would it be true to say that at least what was happening previously was that these cases were going direct uh, from a GP or from possibly a hospital uh, direct to the Tavistock clinic here in London uh, rather than necessarily going through the community paediatric services? Yeah, absolutely. So some of them might go through um, CAMS, Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, um, to the Tavistock. But actually, until um, recently, not only that, but children could be referred to the Tavistock directly by schools or charities or social workers or anybody. So they didn't even have to go through a GP um, or a paediatric services. Um, but certainly um, children who did pitch up to sort of some kind of paediatric service, you know, if they expressed any kind of gender concerns, they would immediately be referred to the Tavistock um, kind of without necessarily referring to local mental health services or exploring things in any way. Um, they would go straight there. And this is an issue which has raised a lot of uh, concern, hasn't it, um, generally, that um, this recognition that many 
children and adolescents who present with some kind of distress or unease about their gender frequently have other conditions, other diagnoses, and that one needs to understand uh, this particular presenting issue in terms of a much broader perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think, you know, these are very complex children. Um, So there was recently, or or there's ongoing, there's an NHS England review into the treatment of children with gender dysphoria. Um, And one of the things that they sort of, you know, highlighted was the complexity of of the children being referred to service. You know, they don't just have gender dysphoria, they have, you know, all sorts of other things going on. Um, and, uh, and so what you what you see is the is the sort of the gender identity um, is kind of like the tip of the iceberg, and you need to look at what's going on. And, and as a community pediatrician, that that's what I that's what I've always done in my work. You know, when a child is referred to you with, they might have ASD. Um, you know, you you kind of look at everything that's going on to see what else might be going on. It's what you do in pediatrics generally. You know, you ch- children are complex, and, and even something as simple as a tummy ache could have all sorts of non-medical um, reasons why a child's got a tummy ache. So as paediatricians, that's what we're used to doing, looking at all the different things that might be going on and all the different things that might be needed to support the child um, and, and you know what they need. But actually what's been happening with gender is that as soon as gender dysphoria is, is sort of recognised as a, an issue, everything else gets ignored. So, you know, I, c- I can think of children that I've been involved with where... Uh, you know, they are put on the huge waiting list for the Tavistock because it's it's thousands at the moment, the waiting list for the Tavistock, and they get put on this waiting list and local services say, well, they're on the waiting list for the experts. We're, we're not doing anything. You know, we, we don't know anything about gender. Um, so, so all of the other stuff that might be going on just is not dealt with and he's just ignored. Um, and, he's, and, and something else that came out in the CAS reviews is kind of diagnostic overshadowing, as you call it, so that once one thing is identified, everything else gets ignored. Should we just quickly explain the CAS review for people who haven't heard of it? That was a kind of official NHS investigation into the Tavistock, which is the only NHS clinic in England for for gender identity. Yeah, yes, it was. So so partly to do with the rise in referrals to Tavistock um, and partly to do with um, concerns that were being raised about what was going on at the Tavistock. The NHS England commissioned a review into all of the um, treatment and the services that were going on. And that is... There's been an interim report that came out uh, February 2022, um, but uh, we're awaiting the sort of next whatever is going to happen after that. But am I right in saying the NHS England has already said as a result of the cast review, they're going to kind of break up the Tavistock and and completely reshape how gender identity issues are treated in, in the NHS? That yes, that that is that is the plan. Um, initially, they said they were going to shut the Tavistock Clinic in uh, in April 2023. Um, obviously, that hasn't happened. They're now saying April next year. Um, but there are, and I note there's some stuff in the news just just yesterday and today um, uh, that that concerns about the people that are going to be sort of running these new services are actually the people from the previous service where there were all the concerns. Um, so there are concerns that that it's not going to be as much of a kind of newly or, you know, newly organised service as perhaps we would like it to be. One of the things that interests me uh, is comparing what's going on in the UK with other countries, particularly with the States, 
quite a lot of our listeners to this podcast come from the States. And it appears in the States that the American Association of Pediatrics years ago took a kind of policy decision that they were going to be very supportive of uh, of all gender transitioning uh, requests and that um, the vast majority of pediatricians in the States have therefore been uh, very actively and, and positively involved. At least that's that's the public persona, isn't it? Mm. And um, that seems rather different from what's been happening here in the UK and, and in some other European countries. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think certainly, the, I mean, a, a big difference obviously between the, the US and a number of other countries, I suppose, and um, and the UK is is the, the way the health system is set up, I, I suppose. So, um, so, you know, in the US, it, it's all private health care um, and an insurance based and that kind of thing. And so, you know, cynical view on this, you know, putting a child on, on puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and surgery, medical patient for life, um, makes lots of money. Um, so, you know, that, that, that's a potentially cynical view, but maybe, you know, but certainly it's a, you know, the, the, the health system in the US is, is much more of a, um, a consumer driven um, setup. Whereas the NHS, obviously, we have limited resources. Um, it's all sort of much more um, carefully curated, I suppose. Um, and, and I have to say, um, probably slightly controversial, but this whole gender thing has made me somewhat lose um, faith in the NHS, to be honest, because prior to, to finding out what was going on at the Tavistock and, and, and all of this, you know, I would have always said, well, if it's happening in the NHS, it must be evidence based. It must have been properly looked at. Um, you know, a treatment wouldn't be given to children unless it was, you know, licensed and, and it all being properly looked, you know. And, and obviously in this scenario, what we've discovered is that that is absolutely not, not the case. Um, and so, you know, but having said that, the NHS because of the way it works, it has sort of not gone as far as other countries have. Um, and it has sort of, um, you know, been a, a somewhat protective. Um, and, and I think also does enable us to be in a situation, unlike the US, where we can turn this round. I think turning it around in the US is, is a much harder thing because each individual hospital pretty much does, does their own thing, um, as far as I understand it. Whereas um, in the NHS, it is, it is somewhat different. Although, of course, there is also the element that parents in this country also seek private um, treatment for children, which is a whole nother, a whole nother sort of discussion, really. So the, the American paediatrician, the Association of Paediatricians, argue that their treatment of um, patients requesting uh, transition of gender using gender blockers, using surgery, using hormones and so on. They argue that this is all, quotes, evidence-based, that it's following established guidelines and so on. But I think there is actually, once you look into the longer-term outcome studies, uh, actually the research is very, very limited indeed, isn't it? Yeah, the research is very limited. I mean, there is very little evidence that this this um, line of treatment is is, is beneficial at all. Um, I mean, it's it's a very new thing treating children, so we don't actually know long term outcomes. 
Um, but certainly uh, back in uh, 2021, as part of sort of the, the sort of looking at what was going on the Tavistock here, the NICE, which is the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, part of the NHS that sort of looks at treatments and, and um, things uh, for uh, in the NHS, they did a, an evidence review um, on puberty blockers and one on cross-sex hormones and found that, that the evidence base was, was you know, almost nil. Um, and what evidence there was, was likely to be biased and was, you know, so it was not something to base a treatment pathway on. Um, I mean, I think there's also, so, so the, the current treatment pathway, which was known as the Dutch protocol, um, came, came out of some studies uh, done um, in the past, which indicated that puberty blockers um, actually brought about an, an improvement in mental health. But in fact, that has not been replicated. Um, so studies since then, in fact, even data from the Tavistock itself actually shows a worsening of mental health, uh, not an improvement when children go on puberty blockers. Um, so, you know, so the sort of the, the, the premise that this whole pathway is based on is, is really very flawed. Um, and, you know, we don't really, uh, you know, and obviously normally drug trials, you know, the gold standard is sort of randomized control trials and that you're, it, it's blinded. So you don't know, you know, whether you're on the drug or not. Well, obviously that would be an incredibly difficult thing to do with something like puberty blockers um, because you know, you're, you're wanting to know mental health outcomes um, and but you, you obviously you can't, you know, hide physical changes. Um, to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. One of the things you often hear in this debate is that um, while, you know, it might make sense to, to not do something drastic like a, a surgical intervention when, a, when someone is under 18, but puberty blockers are just buying time and they're just delaying things and letting the child, the adolescent kind of have a few more years before they kind of irrevocably grow into the gender their biological sex is uh, and and they're reversible and so what's the harm in putting children on these these puberty blockers these hormones for a few years while they figure that things out and then they can either choose to go ahead with a full surgical transition when they're an adult or they could in, in go, go back to their kind of biological sex what's your response to, to that argument you hear yeah and that, and that was absolutely the rationale behind giving puberty blockers uh, in, in the early days. So the, the idea was that so puberty blockers are something which are used in children who um, go into puberty early. Um, so if children go into puberty very early, that can have all sorts of effects on um, growth and bone density and, and, and all sorts of things like that. So children who go through puberty too early are put on puberty blockers and they come off them once they get to a normal puberty age. But giving them to children that are going through a normal puberty and normal age is, is something very new. But the idea was that, as you said, that it would kind of give them chance to sort of not be distressed, ch chance to sort of put puberty on hold so they could work through whatever issues were going on. They were supposed to have a full psychosocial assessment um, and therapy if needed so that then they could make a decision. Unfortunately, what has actually sort of transpired is that almost every child that goes on puberty blockers with a, literally a very tiny few of exceptions will all go on to cross-sex hormones. So 
Although in theory, puberty blockers are reversible, in practice, almost nobody has gone on to puberty blockers and then come off puberty blockers and gone through their biological puberty. Um, so, so that argument is very poor. And, and I think one of the one of the reasons for that is, is that not only do puberty blockers stop your physical development, they also stop all the emotional and brain development that occurs during puberty. So puberty is not just about developing breasts and your penis growing and, and all that kind of thing. It's about your brain changing. Um, it's about the emotional maturation, sort of, uh, you know, sort of understanding who you are, understanding, you know, kind of what it's what it means to become an adult so you're not you know, you're longer a girl or a boy you're growing into a you know man or a woman um and so puberty blockers also stops that and of course in the past some of the children who experienced gender dysphoria as very young children um as they went through puberty those feelings of gender dysphoria would often go away so in about 80 to 90 percent of those cases as they went through puberty those feelings would resolve so of course if you put them on puberty blockers you're not giving them the chance for that to resolve. And so what we're seeing is that it, once they go on to puberty blockers, they are started on a, a pathway, a trajectory, um, which there appears to be you know, a little way off um, until some of these pe young people come to a point where they realise that actually transitioning hasn't done what they were expecting it to do and it hasn't helped. Um, and then they're stuck with irreversible uh, effects. And we are seeing more people coming up, coming up, aren't we? Who are who've been through this um, process of treatment and are then in their twenties, or, or and saying, actually, this was a terrible mistake, um, and I've been permanently harmed in some way by this treatment, uh, so-called detransitioning, and um, that does seem to be a, a genuine phenomenon, doesn't it? That that is um, that is growing and causing deep concern. Yeah, absolutely. So, so there are in sort of increasing numbers of, of as you as you say, detransitioners um, coming forward. And you know, I think you know we're only sort of just starting to see this as a huge phenomenon because obviously treating children with these drugs is, is a relatively new thing. Um, but there are some really you know heartrending stories out there of, of particularly like you say young women um, who you know, hated themselves, were really struggling. They they kind of came to the conclusion that gender dysphoria was the issue, that transitioning was going to be the answer. Um, and, you know, have, have now, a lot of them have come to a point where either they completely regret what they did, or maybe not completely regret, but realise that it hasn't solved all the problems they thought it was. And then they are left with um, characteristics of, you know, so facial hair, deep voice. Some of them will have had surgery. That some of them have had double mastectomies, um, and and if they've had other surgeries, a lot of them have complications, difficulties, you know, um, with with you know, passing urine and and all sorts of things that um, you know that they are left with not only still the mental health problems that they had in the first place, but huge physical problems to go along with that. One of the things you sometimes hear in this discussion is is the idea that um, there's a kind of social contagion and that, um, you know, in, in when I was a teenager, you know, there were lots of particularly girls, but not exclusively, who were struggling with issues around body image and insecurities and mental health. And that maybe might be, expre be expressed 20 years ago through things like um, struggling with self-harming or eating disorders. 
and, and some people say, well, it's exactly the same today. It's just now the kind of issue du jour it is gender dysphoria. And so some of the same girls, if they had been 20 years later, would have, would have rather than be struggling with anorexia, they're now coming forward and, and requesting kind of to go onto puberty blockers. Is there any merit to that, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, it certainly does seem to be that, that that's, you know, the case. And, and, and like exactly like you said, you know, sort of 10, 20 years ago, that we would have seen a lot of girls of this sort of age um, who were presenting as anorexic and self-harm. And you would see, you would often see clusters of them in schools. So you would have a whole friendship group who would all be anorexic or self-harming or whatever. Um, and, and there does seem to be quite a parallel between sort of types of girls that are now presenting with gender dysphoria. And you are definitely see these sort of clusters of girls. So, you know, you have one one girl in a friendship group will um, identify as transgender um, or non-binary and then you know a whole group friendship group um, do exactly the same um, so I think there's, there's definitely an element of that I think the whole social media online world is, is also a big thing because 10-20 years ago that wasn't there um, so your friendship group was purely your group of friends at school whereas now they go online um, they sort of find these whole communities of, of trans um, influencers who kind of talk about how wonderful it is and you know tell you that it's the answer to all your problems that's you know that's why why you're struggling um, and these young people just um, seem to be understanding a lot of the teenage angst teenage distress which we know has always been there particularly for girls um, but they seem to be understanding it very much through the lens of you know gender dysphoria um, and transgender rather than kind of anything else um, and I think that the whole sort of sexualized society we live in as well um, I think you know o online pornography you know girls don't want to be grow up to be the, the women that they see portrayed um, and boys sometimes don't want to grow up to be the kind of men they see portrayed um, and 10 or 20 years ago you might have felt very uncomfortable with your changes of puberty but that's what it was. You, you had no option to get out of it. You know, there, I, I, you know, lots of girls have you know gone through. Wish I was a boy because boys get to do you know better things and you know life's easier for boys. They don't have to worry about being you know attacked on the way home or whatever. Um, there was never an option. Whereas now there's this, there is this option, or at least girls think there is, to to opt out of being a girl. You know, I don't, I, I can be a boy or I can be non-binary. I think I was also there's some evidence that sometimes parents were um, actually encouraging um, their their daughters. They, they, it seemed as though when the daughter expressed uh, same sex attraction to other girls, um, some parents were so uh, concerned about this that they interpreted that. I mean, maybe you know you're really a boy. The reason you're attracted to girls is because you're really a boy and we should encourage you to consider transitioning. And so, was that a myth? Is that, is that real? Um, I think, I think parents, a lot of parents do react, react in, in very different ways. I think, I, I mean, I think the whole sort of girls being same sex attracted thing, um, you know, is, I think, so sometimes girls who are same sex attracted often dress in, in, you know, in, in sort of quite a, boyish or androgynous way and, and whereas previously they they might have been labeled a tomboy or, or whatever you know now it's it's kind of like oh well you know maybe you're maybe you're actually a boy um I mean I think I think 
as far as sort of parental influence goes, I mean, I think I certainly I have had heard stories of younger boys who are perhaps, a, you know, a bit more effeminate, where um, it's sort of looking like perhaps they're going to be um, experiencing same sex attraction, that actually parents have felt that it, it, it's kind of, oh, actually, maybe they're really a girl. Um, so, you know, I think, I think, you know, there are all sorts of different scenarios, um, but, it, you know, but sometimes it may not be necessarily that parents have actually put that pressure on, but it might be a perceived pressure from, from the child that, you know, oh my goodness, they, you know, they would rather I was a boy than, than be, um, being lesbian, or they'd rather I was a girl than be gay. Um, you know, that, so it might be a, a pressure that, you know, I mean, and not just parents, I guess churches, you know, people, kids might feel that, um, that you know that they that they wouldn't be accepted as a as a gay person, but they might be accepted if they were actually the, the opposite sex. So one of the documents that you um, put gave us background reading, which we will uh, link to in the notes, was a document intended particularly for schools to understand the role that that schools play in adolescents who are. Uh, considering uh, gender transition and so on. And I found that absolutely fascinating because, to be honest, I don't think the role of the schools is something that has generally come to uh, public attention. You know, we've tended to focus on the doctors, on the medical referral pathways. But uh, do you want to say something more about that, about the role of the schools? Yeah, um I mean, I think the, the reason that schools uh, play play a, a huge part in this is because it's because of social transition, really. I think so. Um, so before a, a child would sort of, you know, even be considered for um, any kind of med, you know, medical intervention, you know, that child may, particularly teenagers, may have, you know, just suddenly decided I want to be transgender started dressing in different clothes using different names using different pronouns and so that's that's known as social transition and I think in the in the early days that was felt that that was just um a, a way of uh just making the child feel more comfortable so you know let's call them name, the name they want to be called let's you know let them dress how they how they want um and you know and so schools have been actively kind of encouraging that at, on occasions or certainly allowing it and, and there have been a number of documented um, situations where they haven't told parents. So they've allowed a child to present as the opposite sex um, without even telling the parents, um, which obviously is a huge concern. Um, and so, so one of the big worries about this is that social transition has been sort of considered as a sort of a just a, you know, accommodation, I suppose, for a child, when in fact it's actually an active intervention. So the Going back to the CAS review again, this was highlighted in that, that social transition, you know, it hasn't been thought of previously as part of the medical pathway, as it were, because it happens in schools and it happens in homes. But actually, it's a key part because once that child is um, sort of affirmed and people around them agree with them that they have a gender identity, which is different to their biological sex, it's much harder for that child to kind of change their mind or look at what might be causing it and they and it, it so it's the sort of first step along that pathway so just as puberty blockers kind of sets children into that pathway of transition actually social transition is the step before that um, and, and as I said earlier um, the, actually schools can refer or could in the past refer directly to the Tavistock so schools were actually 
kind of make it almost making a diagnosis, which normally schools refuse to. You know, they, they normally schools won't do anything until you've given a diagnosis. You know, we can't put interventions in place till you've given the child a diagnosis of autism or till you've given them a diagnosis of ADHD. Whereas in this scenario, they're kind of going ahead and doing interventions which are going to have an impact on this child for the rest of their life without even a medical person being involved. And one of the things I find really striking and strange about this issue of schools is, you know, I've sometimes seen shared online some of the materials that schools use around teaching around gender, often produced by kind of outside lobby groups like mermaids. And they have a strikingly regressive attitude to to gender itself. You know, it's a lot about, well, if you if your biological sex is male, but you enjoy wearing a dress maybe you're a girl or you like the color pink maybe you're a girl or or if other way around if you're a girl but you like to have short hair and you know uh, playing rugby maybe you're a boy where which seems astonishingly backwards approach to how we categorize and define kind of sex and gender where you know again as recently as 20 years ago when I was at school the whole push was about let's let's be more tolerant and open-minded and accepting of different people when it comes to you know gay gay pupils in school let's let's allow them to be themselves and not try and force them to conform and somehow we've done a kind of full 180 and it seems like schools are saying well hang on we have this child who we know was was born a girl but they're presenting as a tomboy let's try and our conception of what it means to be a girl is so narrow that doesn't compute so we must move them over to a different category Mm -hmm. yeah it is i say it is astonishing isn't it because you know we've we sort of we've made so much progress in um sort of not forcing gender stereotypes on 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 children um and you know or supposedly um and, and yet actually the, the situation has gone like you say completely the other way you know i mean it, you only have to look at toys for example you know actually because you know when i was a, when i was a child a bit more than 20 years ago um the lego was lego you know, it, it was just brightly coloured Lego and you made whatever you wanted to out of your Lego. Whereas now there's clear boy Lego and girl Lego, you know. So so what if you're a boy who likes, you know, girl Lego, you know, or what if you're a girl who likes Star Wars Lego? You know, and, and that then is, is sort of translated into, you know, or maybe you're, you know, maybe really inside you're the opposite sex. And, you know, and, and also, you know, I, I remember my son dressing up in his sister's Cinderella dress when he was about three. He looked very cute in it. Um, and, you know, and back then, 20 years ago, nobody nobody thought, oh, maybe he's really a girl. Whereas now a boy puts on a dress and let's face it, girls dressing up clothes are much more fun than boys dressing up clothes. Um, but, but you know, as a parent, if your child put on a dress, your, your boy put on a dress at the age of three, you'd start worrying or you'd worry what other people thought or you know, and, and there is this sort of pressure, isn't it? If you're not a typical girl or a typical boy, whatever that means, um, then maybe really you're the actually the opposite sex. In the interest of confidentiality, I shall draw a veil on what Tim used to dress up in as. But, uh, you know, you could ask me offline. <laughs> Yeah, let's let's move swiftly on. Um, <laughs> shall we shall we start to think about a little bit about how we as Christians, I guess for you, Julie, as a, as a Christian kind of physician and 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 but in general, those who are listening, you know, p- people going to church, trying to wrap our heads around some of this. It's, in, it's incredibly political, it's going to be controversial. H- how can we start to engage with this issue uh, in a kind of distinctively Christian way, faithful to 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 scripture and, and the tradition that we're raised in? Yeah, I, I think I think as Christians we we really do need to engage with this. I mean, I think 
I, th I think perhaps we're, as so often is the case with Christians, we're, we're a bit behind the curve on this. Um, and I think probably, uh, you know, I, I know for me, you know, have, having conversations sort of five or six years ago and, and sort of people are like, oh, you know, oh, you know, let's let's not let's not go there. Um, but of course, what what started off as a phenomenon in schools and, and outside of the church is, is coming into the church. And, you know, so certainly I'm seeing more and more young people within the church identifying as transgender or non-binary or certainly having thoughts around around that so um you know we absolutely need to engage with it i think we we need to understand what's going on in society we need to understand what is is going on with all this but we can we need to do that with the sort of um foundation of the fact that we're created by god that being created male and female is a, a key part of um of how we are created you know it, it that's what Kind of makes us in God's image is part of what makes us in God's image. Um, and I think the other thing that, that has really struck me as I've engaged with the sort of secular medical world on this whole sort of gender dysphoria issue is that they've always been they're always very clear that this is about identity, um, that this is about young people finding their identity. But of course, they don't really have any answers for that um, because you know if you if you don't get your identity from what people think of you. And you you getting your identity from inside of you sort of kind of goes horribly wrong. Um, and then then where do you get your identity from? You know, and as Christians, of course, we, we have the answer to that. You know, God created us. It's God that gives us our identity. You know, God knows who we are. We don't have to find out who we are. God knows who we are. Um, and, and I think, you know, we we have a, a unique position as Christians to to love and engage with people, you know, and young people who are struggling with these issues. Um, and, and also, I think, going back to the sort of detransitioner element of it, you know, pe people who have transitioned to a certain extent and then have decided that that's not how they want to, to live, um, they are set adrift. They, they, they've got nowhere to belong. The trans community who welcomed them in initially, that, you know, shuns them completely. Um, and so I think as Christians, you know, to be welcoming and to think about how we can support and welcome um, these you know, people who are vulnerable and hurting, I think, is, 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 a, is a really interesting um, thing that, that we need to do. Thanks. That's, that's really helpful. And, um, and I certainly resonate with, with what you're saying. There's a lovely line from one of the worship songs which says, I am who you say I am, you know, that, that ultimately... It is God himself who who defines us. But I, I totally agree with what you say about that the church should be a welcoming community. I, I sometimes feel that it's it's possible for this issue to so get caught in the in the culture wars that <clears throat> the actual victims in all this are are lost sight of, you know, and, and, as, and, and the honest truth is that there seems to be an awful lot of young people who are desperately sad, desperately, you know, with internal anguish. Um, as you say, often very, very complex, lots of uh, trauma, abuse, different things going on in the past, um, the whole social media world. So I, I, I do think that, that, you know, it should be a wake-up call to all of us, shouldn't it, that there are so many hurting young people in our midst and that our first uh, calling is to is to try to be there for them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, just like 
I sort of said earlier with the whole sort of um, in the medical world, once gender is, is sort of highlighted, everything else gets ignored. And I think I think as churches and as Christians, I think that can be the same. You know, when I talk to parents who, um, you know, whose who teenager has suddenly said, I want to be a boy, you know, they, they go into this flat panic. And actually, you know, once you kind of talk to them and just sort of say, you know, actually the gender is, is the tip of the iceberg. It's the bit you're seeing at the top. But what else is going on for, for your child? There are a million and one things you can do to support your child. And, and the same as churches, you know, there are loads of things we can do to sort of make children, you know, feel getting interest in the world outside them, physical things, get off the Internet, um, you know, just help them to be happier you know, with with who they are and kind of just unpick some of what they might be struggling with. You, you, you don't have to get bogged down in the gender stuff actually um because often it, it's it's just a, a, a tiny symptom of loads of other stuff and there's loads of other things that we can do to support these children um without having to sort of see the gender and panic um i think a lot of christians when they first engage this issue without any kind of expertise and knowledge they like instinctively feel well transition must always be wrong we are kind of instinctively we must be kind of we're kind of bioethically conservative by by default um but don't really unpick that kind of theologically and, and yet sometimes you, i've come across seeing christians saying well actually hang on maybe there is a a christian argument which says you know we were made male and female for sure but we also know that our created order is kind of marred by the fall and maybe actually i was born a boy but that's actually a consequence of the brokenness of the world and actually in kind of god's eyes i was always a girl and so actually transition of social or medical is actually a kind of theologically appropriate response how how would you respond to to that kind of line of thinking yeah i i, I mean there are there are definitely different views um on that i mean personally um i you know i don't think i, I don't think that transition is is ever the, the, the right thing to do I mean and part of that is, is less theological than medical actually because you know there, there is very little medical evidence that transitioning actually um you know has good better outcomes in the end I mean there are there are people who transition to adults and who are very happy with with that but there's all sorts of reasons why adults have gender dysphoria whole nother, whole nother story but um so I think you know I don't I I don't but I certainly as far as children goes, I don't think it's I don't think it's ever right. Um, partly because we know that lots of the children will become comfortable with their biological sex as they get older. Um, and I think, you know, but I think from a medical perspective, you know, transition, it, you know, if if it is the right thing for a very few adults, possibly, it's a very few, um, and and you need to be, you know, absolutely sure that it is everything else has been tried first because it you know transition you know, the, the med medical and surgical stuff it, you know it's it's major surgery it, it's medical patient for life it's being infertile it's all of those things so it would have to be even if you think it's okay the absolute last resort and there would be you know so many other things and that's what we do in medicine you know it's it's interesting that we treat this in a very different way to other areas of medicine where you always would give the treatment that has the least side effects the least invasive um and you know and actually you know therapy and helping a person even if they continue to experience gender dysphoria for the rest of their life helping them to deal with that has surely got to be the best way rather than attempting to change their body 
to, to match how they feel. You know, to me, that, that makes no sense at all. We don't do it in anything else. Um, so, so why would we do it in, in this scenario? Um, so it's about helping people to, you know, uh, find ways to deal with it. It doesn't mean it's going to go away. Gender dysphoria may may remain um, for the rest of their life. Um, but uh, but you can do just just the same as other other things, you know, depression, anxiety, all other mental health conditions. You know, they don't necessarily go away, but you find ways to manage it. Uh, one other thing you often hear in the church on this issue, I mean, I sympathise some of this, is that there's a real fear of Christians saying, I just, you know, I, I share some of your concerns. I think there's something slightly alarming going on here with children, but it's just so political. It's so controversial. I'm afraid of the backlash. I don't want to get sucked into a culture war. Why can't we just leave that to the experts like you, Julie, and we'll just chug along in our local church or, or whatever and, and just not not get, not get involved. Do you think that's fine? It's, it's not for everyone? Or do you think actually we have a responsibility as Christians to kind of speak up when we think something might be, something bad might be happening? I mean, I mean, I, I'm, I'm no expert. I, I just saw something that I didn't think was right and, and you know, and, and pursued it. And, um, you know, and, uh, yeah, God, God obviously had had ideas of, of where you know He wanted me to to go. So I think I don't think it's I don't think everybody you know is, is called to you know stand up and fight in public or, or whatever. But I think I think we all do because this is affecting so many children and young people now. We all do have a responsibility to know what is going on so that we know how to deal with it when that child pitches up at our youth group or, or whatever, you know, or, or the person what comes in, you know, walks into church, you know, and, and you know, because a really interesting sort of thinking back to what you just said about transition as well, a, a really interesting thing in the future is going to be, you know, how do we, how do we help these vulnerable people who have gone through some degree of transition who are never going to be able to, you know, look like a, a normal girl or a, a normal, a normal woman or a normal man, and, and we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to think about how we accept them and love them and support them um, going forward. So I think I think it is everybody's responsibility because I, I I can guarantee you, even if you don't know that somebody in your church is struggling with this, if you've got young people in your church, they 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 will be, there will be people, even if they haven't um, said it. But you know, my experience is that you talk to anybody now, almost everybody has somebody in their family or in their child's school or wherever it might be, who is sort of non-binary or transgender or whatever. And, and so we do all have responsibility. And actually, it, it's way better to think about this and know what you're dealing with before you have to come across it, rather than when your 13-year-old daughter suddenly comes home and says, I'm transgender, um, you've got to call me this, you've got to call me and, and parents are thrown into a flat panic. Um, but actually, if they'd known a bit more about it beforehand and, and known how to deal with it they would have been able to kind of you know handle it in, in a better way in many ways it does feel like the kind of the pastoral issue of our time you know that whether you want whether you want to get involved in the medicine or the theology but we're all as you say we can't as parents as youth leaders as church members as pastors we can't ignore the, the pastoral demand there from people on all from all ends you know children detransitioners people going through it um there's a huge pastoral need there and and the church has to step up if nothing else in, in kind of showing the the love of jesus to those people absolutely you know we we are there to care for the most vulnerable and to make sure the most vulnerable are cared for properly as well and if we see 
injustice and um, you know th things being done in a wrong way, then and we have a duty to, to to stand up and protect protect the vulnerable. So it's not just a political thing. This this is actually about protecting people, protecting children particularly, which of course is always such an important thing because they are so vulnerable. Great. Well, we're kind of running out of time for this episode, but before we go, um, is there any um, kind of helpful resources or, or places that people, maybe parents, maybe church leaders, could go if they're if they if this is a presenting issue for them in their context? Yeah. So, I mean, there there are now an increasing number of places that people can go to get get good information, which it, which is good. Um, so uh, there there are organisations. There are some medical organisations which produce sort of information. So there's um, Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine, which is an international um, group, and then there's a there is a UK version as well. Um, and there are there's an uh, organisation called Transgender Trend, which is a secular organisation, but produces lots of helpful resources on how you might manage this at home, and particularly on how you might manage it in schools. Um, there are support groups for parents. So in the UK, there's a group called Bayswater Support Group, which is um, being set up by parents of, of trans-identifying children, um, and they do, do a great job of supporting parents who suddenly find themselves in this situation. And they have some really helpful stuff on their website as well. Um, more internationally, there's an organisation called Genspect, which is also um, a, a secular organisation, um, but supports parents in, in these situations. There's a there's a great podcast which I love which is called uh, Gender, A Wider Lens. Um, and that um, is uh, Sasha Ayad, who's a US therapist, and Stella O'Malley, who's an Irish therapist. And they discuss, um, and they, they make a great, it's really easy to listen to, and they uh, discuss all sorts of issues around gender. Um, so that's that would be, um, a, a, you know, highly recommended. Um, and I've written a Piece for Living Out um, website, which sort of gives some pointers for parents. So if you suddenly, your child suddenly kind of comes to you and says um, that they're transgender or somebody in your church, um, there's some really helpful pointers um, on there with some links. Fantastic. That's really, really helpful. Thanks so much. We'll include links to everything Julie mentioned and some other helpful stuff in the podcast notes. So do have a look at that and click through some of there. Um, but thank you, Julie. It's been really interesting hearing your your perspectives and experience on this. I think it's been really helpful on what can be a very tricky topic. So we're really grateful to have you on the show. And uh, thanks everyone else for listening. Um, as always, uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. So please do get in touch with us. You can email molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk. Um, but otherwise, uh, we'll speak to you again next week with a new show. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Unbelievable.